welcome to the 16th episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the current historical moment in our self-isolating pajamas and discuss particular keywords. The keyword for today is civilization. And joining us, we have Robin Caniford. So, Alan, would you like to introduce Robin? Certainly I would. Robin Caniford works at the University of Melbourne. Uh, he co-edited the book Assembling Consumption, Researching Actors, Networks and Markets um, and has is the innovator behind the concept of nosenography, which we might ask him what that means later. Hello, Robin. Hello, Alan. Hello, you So, Robin, we're going to talk today about civilization. How would we begin to conceptualize civilization? Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it, Alan? Um, I noticed that a lot of you guys have been going to Raymond Williams's uh, text, and I went straight there and no civilization entry. Um, so it seems it was too complicated even for, for Raymond. So uh, good luck to me. I mean, we could start treating civilization as, as a description of sites at which we recognize certain particular features. Um, we could say creative power, a drastic change from a natural, if you like, state of man towards works of literature, production of technology, art, all of which, I think this is important, all of which enlarge human capacity for survival uh, and, and flourishing in some way. And that could be survival against plague, disease, hunger, invasion. Um, and in, in, in that sense, civilizations require an orientation to the future. So once we have that orientation to I think we see a flourishing of, of organizational forms. It's, it's pretty fundamental. If you're playing Sid Meier's civilization game on, on the computer, you, you start out with a group of undifferentiated people. And your job is to establish increasing varieties of social functions, whether they be soldiers, farmers, sailors, metallurgists, you know, priests, whatever. They're all organizations that take care of, of different jobs. And, and your job is to sort of fit all of that together somehow. So it's these, these specialized functions, or you might even say a division of labor, is, is, a, is, is, if you like, a second mark of civilization that, that follows from the future orientation. And then whenever there's these new organizations, we see material culture playing, playing you know, out as a vital part of that as well. Uh, the orientation to the future and specialized functions are writ large, I guess, in objects of art, uh, architecture, uh, that's, that serve organizations, uh, whether those be you know, granaries and libraries, or as modernity wears on other forms of organization, barracks, university, factory, prison, laboratory, um, and, and certainly all the way through to more connected materialisms like railways, postal services, and, and latterly uh, computing. And we should say here, art and music have a central place in all of this. It's easy to forget how these, you know, the, if you like, more than representational forms are, are, are fundamental to all of these um, organizational and, and material sites. From, from I'm thinking cathedral doors and windows, you know, the intricacy of those things to illuminated manuscripts through to the, even the metro stations in Moscow. We have accompanying art forms to organizations that explain and affectively transmit the power of organization, society, change, the future. Um, and, it's, and it's really, I think it's very interesting with art forms that often these are meant to outlast 
the functions and the organizations themselves, you know. So that's that's pretty fundamental, I think. Uh, civilization leaves art forms that, that, that once led people in the civilizations, uh, but give us an amazing, an amazing eye back. The major theorist of civilization has got to be Norbert Elias, who spoke of a civilizing process. Can you explain to us what that means? Elias uh, drew on, you know, a lot of thinkers that went before him, the um, Annals School of, of History and, you know, uh, Ferdinand Braudel, Mark Bloch, who I suppose were all interested in the way that civilization was moving into an orientation towards the future with these new social functions and institutional materialisms. What we get with those changes, Thomas Aquinas well understood that systems and order come out of these achievements. And violence is swapped for pacification, destruction for creativity, isolation for interconnection, ignorance and fear, you know, are swapped for, for knowledge and hope. And to, in the words, you know, Charles D Dudley Warner um, comes to mind, Mark Twain's old mate, we become well-born, well-bred, well-fed and well-read. Um, and of these, it's well-born that sticks in my mind. Um, you know, even now, if you, if you say that you know civilization, you're pretty lucky because civilization has always demanded this sort of Faustian pact. Uh, James the other week was discussing how to achieve utopia. You need to do the worst possible things, he was saying, you know, quite, quite perversely. I think this kind of perversion is borne out in the achievements of civilization. Uh, is civilization a, a, an end point? to be achieved like a utopia is a question, is sort of a, 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 a firm endpoint. Certainly there's these organizational attempts to better the lives of people in, in some way or other. But this also leads us to look at civilization as great achievements. You know, at one stage in the, in the 18th century, it was, it was very fashionable to have a sort of a, a Greek style temple folly in your stately home garden. It's a looking back to, to, to say how civilized you are. Simultaneously, We've got to think about the industrial revolutions, dark satanic mills, the excommunications, the purges, the gulags, the exile and estrangement that accompanies all of this, what we call progress. And for that reason, I think we can safely say that civilization requires various kinds of externalization and externality for its survival. Um, in that case, civilization is something of a comparative term. Uh, and, you know, the benchmark is barbarity or, or a primitive that we can say that these images of primitive societies and barbarity appear in literature, cinema, ethnography um, during the 19th century. Cinema, literature, art, even pornography has images of, of you know, the primitive in, in inverted commas. And it's this witnessing of the, the other, an external other, that's held up as a justification for uh, civilization. The, the great civilizing mission of the empires. Uh, Charles Dickens, despite his recognized works in, in, in raising the plight of children and the poor in, in Victorian civilization, was quite happy to speak of, of the noble savage as his words were worthy only of being civilized off the face of the earth. I think we should reject the idea of civilization as a noun to describe a stage of human development or some end point to be attained. And instead, think of civilization as a kind of a machine or, a, you know, Foucault might talk of a diagram that organizes at a very unintended level. It's nobody's planning this. You know, it organizes how society changes. 
And that enables us to move from civilization as a hypothetical endpoint uh, to being a process. The move from civilization as endpoint to civilization as process is, is as you say, Alan, it's, it's definitely, definitely what Norman Elias was exploring in his classic two-volume um, civilizing process, as well as uh, a few other studies. Um, court society, the Germans, and and his work with Eric Dunning on sport. And this sort of peculiar machine-like process that Elias is interested in is, is state formation, the formation of, of nation-states, um, when in the medieval period, particularly in Western Europe, he's talking about how many small feudal kingdoms are gradually brought under the control of fewer centralized rulers. And we see a centralization of power um, focused on fewer royal courts in various parts of Europe. And that centralization of power, as Elias describes it, depends on a few things, particularly the monopolization of violence, taxation, and physical territory. And over the course of the late Middle Ages through early modernity, the emergence of these nation states with fewer centralized rulers provides those conditions for passivity, creativity, thinking, etc., all of which helps to generate those differentiating social organizations. It helps them to flourish, all that stuff we talked about before. Passivity um, is, is very important to that. So this, this kind of keys into Elias's more important contribution, I think, to um, how we understand civilization. And that's to connect the development of those increasingly inter interdependent societies with all these organizations to the development of human affective capacities, emotions, behavior. And more simply, that's, that's, that's to say that we can, we can locate what a civilization is also in the minds of those who live there. So civilization isn't just buildings, achievements, and, and this sort of brute scale materialism. Uh, Elias's core thesis on civilization is that with these increasing varieties of social roles coming changing levels of personal and social restraint. So more simply, we, we say that civilization is as much an expression of tempered drives towards pleasure and, and aggression, if you like. I'm thinking of David Byrne has a song called Civilization, where he has a line, civilization, it's all about knives and forks. I think Elias would agree. With that, would you say so, or, or or what about all these table manners and the, the the little lived experience of how we practice civilization? Yeah, look, it's all about knives and forks and spoons and 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 spitting and farting, and it, it's it's fabulous. Elias's study, it's this centralization of power around fewer monarchs, sees once in, independent knights and barons, who. Life was, was pretty brutal for these people in the, you know, the 11th century, let's say. Um, knights and barons might have their own castle, limited territory. And if they wanted something, they'd just go out and take it and smash things up, pulling peasants' fingernails out and, and stuff. Um, gradually, with the centralization of rulers, we see this knightly class being fastened to the royal court and they can't act independently anymore. They need the king because the king is, is monopolizing violence. He has a standing army, uh, has taxation, so you know, there's no shortage of funds. Previously independent nobles, if you like, became part of a denser web of networks of interconnected 
organizations that define civilization in, in the terms we described earlier. And importantly, the means to power is no longer violence, but increasingly currying favor with the central mon monarch, be becoming, if you like, part of the in-group. And manners, the, the knives and forks, uh, are, are Elias's key example at these royal courts. Thresholds of shame and embarrassment became increasingly elevated and complex uh, around your interpersonal behavior and, and, and your ability to control your body and communicate. It, st it starts with really basic stuff. Um, in, Elias looked at etiquette texts, that was his method. And in the 13th century, you know, he, he found examples, uh, lots of examples on nose blowing, for example. 13th century, the, the advice was, when you blow your nose, uh, turn around so nothing falls on the table. And, and over the course of this, this, this process, by the 15th century, turn around so nothing falls on the table has, has turned into, don't blow your nose on the tablecloth. You know, it's a little bit more nuanced. By the 16th century, there's more to it, more, more complex instructions. Don't offer your hanky to somebody if you already used it. Don't blow your nose and look, look in the handkerchief to see what came out, right? Well, it's just and, political correctness gone mad, isn't it? Ah, yes, of course, Alan. <laughs> um, but I think what it is, we can talk about a kind of a, a trickle-down, a way to preserve the courtly in-group to preserve your favor with the monarch and to prevent others entering into that social zone to show that you have better manners and to humiliate those who don't have those manners, thereby pushing them away. A symbolic violence, you know, avant la lettre, if you like, it's, it's, it's this is medieval taste-making. And etiquette offers a means of advancement and an access to power. Now, now violence is no longer permitted. And, and importantly, over time, these, all these manners become forgotten. They, they become automatic, second nature. And they're accompanied by, by this changing threshold of shame. If, if one messes up and displays bad manners, then, then you are humiliated. One of Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth I's courtiers, um, Edward de Vere, he, he he imposed exile on himself for seven years because he, he farted in front of the Queen, for example. So with, with increasing interdependency, we get increasing self-discipline, this sort of strictly regulated superego and necessity to self-restraint. Um, and subjects learning to deny the free play of their emotions, whether they be, you know, aggressions, you know, desire or whatever, and to temper this sort of uh, temper these desires. So this is interesting because we would normally think of hygiene um, as related to things like blowing the nose, but you're telling us that the history of these practices is less to do with hygiene and more to do with the civilizing process. Well, you know, the relationship between civilization and hygiene, one of the points Elias makes is it predates the awareness of you know, bacteria and viruses and that sort of thing. So in some ways we could say there's, you know, no relationship between civilization and hygiene. It's all just sort of taste-making and etiquette and power. But at the same time, you know, any, any, any keen observer of history would, would have to note that civilization and, and hygiene have to go hand in hand. Um, 
the, the, those processes of, of increasing specialist organizations and increasingly dense network societies uh, that we associate with the history of the West, all of these occur without reference to modern sense of hygiene, but nevertheless, we see an increased aversion to excrement, body odors, mucus, um, you know, just bodies in general. And we see affective responses to these emerging as, as disgust. Long before we know that, that these things are vectors for diseases like cholera or dysentery, um, in the case of excrement or, or, or viral infections in the case of mucus or, or saliva. On the other hand, but poor hygiene and the concern with hygiene it results from organisational specialisation um, and denser populations that, that follow from that. And, and with dense populations, infectious diseases tend to follow. So even for people who didn't know about bacterial infection, a lot of things that we think of as dirty um, concern the manners of polite society even then. And indeed, they also serve as justification for what or who should be outside society. I think that's, that's kind of the more interesting point here, is that dirty things uh, are associated with dirty people, you know, Mary Douglas style. And dirtiness or cleanliness, whether of body or manners, is a way to include or exclude people from the benefits of the interconnected society we might call a civilization. If we kind of build more on the Foucauldian point, of course, Foucault's famous example in his Discipline and Punish is how society moves from corporeal punishment, this sort of very direct punishment that's inflicted on the body of the culprit to a more abstract form of discipline through a very complex prison system, for example. So first, mm -hmm. there seems to be a move towards the body to take a greater interest on the body, to control the body. But then we move further to a, historically to a notion where the body becomes increasingly abstracted. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think Foucault speaks about the idea of the, you know, the body becomes a factor of production uh, during the course of early modernity. And Elias would, would tend to agree. I mean, the, the, the increased sense of self-discipline uh, and the role of institutions in changing the way that we think are concerns, mutual concerns of, of Elias and, and Foucault. I mean, on the interconnection of those two, I think, you know, the, the, the person that comes to mind is my old um, colleague uh, and, you know, Alan and, and my colleague, Tim Newton, who did some really interesting work looking at the progress of the commercial revolution uh, as requiring the development of a bourgeois class. So once upon a time, the nobility were able to, you know, kind of treat anybody uh, and anything uh, as, as a mere, you know, something to be flicked off the, you know, their, their thigh. With the commercial and industrial revolution, we, we see the emergence of a bourgeois class, enabled particularly through institutions such as the Freemasons, who operated a kind of an early credit lending agency. And provided a financial basis for the, you know, for the, for the emergence of, of those new middle classes 
uh, and engendering a situation in which if you've lent me money and I've lent Alan money um, and Alan doesn't get a payback on, on what he invests in, Alan brings down yourself and myself, you know, so, so credit makes investors like, you know, climbers on a ridge. The fall of one you know, brings us all off the mountain. So I think we see in, in these, if you like, finance and credit becomes a, yet another complete and austere institution in providing these meaningful interconnections whereby people are, are increasingly orientated towards and not one another and must think about the consequences of their actions. And, and again, this is, this is another orientation towards the future. Manifest as, as a tendency to think before you act, think of the ethical, financial, so, social consequences of our actions. So in, in, in short, civilization, as much as being a societal thing, is also, just as with Foucault, a subjectification thing. It's written into our bodies as a habitus and our minds you know, as a superego. I was really stricken by, Eric Arno showed me uh, he has this collection of really old postcards from Africa. And they're black and white postcards. Um, the image is like a photo taken from uh, long ago during the colonialist times. And so there's one of, the, one of these postcards. Uh, the image is of a market square. And all the people are smiling towards the camera. But there's a road sign. And it's written in French. And Eric translated to me. And it literally translates into forced market. So it's a market where, uh, where the French were forcing the Africans to learn how to use money. And it was really striking for me from the perspective of the idea of civilization also as a process of violence in terms of expansion. And of course, nowadays we can't really think of civilization only in the, let's say, lofty modernist terms of progress and well-being and happiness, because it's also a very totalitarian um, process as well. I think that's a really interesting observation and, and, a, and a sort of a fascinatingly grotesque example of the way in which these kind of machines are, are abstracted onto other societies. Uh, you know, one of the things I think we can observe with civilization, as we said earlier on, is they they require exile, estrangement, and externality um, in order to function. The highest achievements of Western Europe are, are built on the backs of other places that, 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 that become treated in this way and, and civilized as a value judgment. I think it's absolutely vital to Elias's thought. Elias, in, in, in a postscript to his work, which he didn't think he really needed to write, the first time round, or, or, or perhaps the time hadn't arrived where he needed to write it. But he was very concerned to point out that the civilizing process isn't a teleological one. It's, it's, it's not rationalized, and it's not moving in a particular direction. Rather, many societies have many different processes. Um, and, you know, he pointed out in his work the difference between a French and a German civilizing process, for example, in, in the court society. But when we come to these kinds of examples, we we see we, we sort of see that civilizing mission writ large. 
and and the way in which the 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 sort of primitive and in inverted commas is is treated in those instances is almost justified by by the by the concept of of civility and and the and the the estrangement that follows that concept can you talk to us Robin, about decivilization can we talk about wet markets first okay <laughs> I thought that was an interesting question, Alan. Go on. Are you going to ask me? <laughs> Where would you say the wet markets come into this? It fits back to Joel's idea that, you know, forced market, that's taking the, 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 an abstract form of market and mapping it onto a place where markets have existed, you know, long before uh, the Western market exists in order to, to sort of further the flows of finance, capital and resources. I think it's a good example of how we can't uh, entirely totalize what is civilized. The moniker wet market, but at a very basic level, we might observe that the buying of live animals and perhaps the killing of live animals in front of the shopper, we might, from our point of view in the West, call that uncivilized because it, it, it invokes a violence that we've long been removed from. So it's, it's a sort of an affective experience that we find bad taste, right? But since tastes and, and affect develop in very specific historical milieu, Elias himself, you know, as I said a minute ago, recognizing how, how a German civilizing process differs from a French civilizing process. I think making value judgments is kind of tricky. And, and also, look, we shouldn't shy away from the results of intensive farming in Europe. Um, I was reading the other day that uh, there's all kinds of disease outbreaks at the moment, thinking of pigs in Poland and, and China out right now there's there's an outbreak of african swine flu that's affected something like 40 percent of of pigs in china so asking whether a wet market is less civilized less less civilized than what i, I think that um perhaps what's more interesting is to question the response to the outcomes of the of the wet market as more or less civilized so when it comes to humans we, we expect we're not subject to biological processes and rules that we might apply to other species. But really that's mad because geography is a natural phenomenon of made possible civilization. And as, as Nora, Nora Campbell explained, um, microbiology is no less an aspect of the, you know, the domesticated band of living things that, that clot together to form a society. Um, and, and with domesticated animals, there's always been a potential for zoonotic disease, uh, you know, the viral transfers and, and the like. Uh, I was looking into this, and the one I came up with was glanders, um, a disease known since an antiquity. It was described by Hippocrates um, around 425 BC. Glanders is caused by a bacterium found in horses and, and donkeys, which we should say are pretty fundamental to any civilization. Cowpox is, is another example, a, a disease associated with a domestic creature. That, uh, and the disease itself is in turn domesticated, civilized if you like, and turned to good use in the early inoculation of smallpox. 
Now, it's interesting that this laboratory domestication of microorganisms that we associate with, say, Louis Pasteur or Edward Jenner, that furthers so many of the other differentiated functions of civilization where many people come together. Another example would be as time's gone on, we discovered that gut bacteria are as much a determinant of mood and sanity as our architecture, le leisure time and, and literature. Those examples, they, they'd be what I call a civilized treatment of non-human things, where we could admit the existence of interconnections to the so-called natural world and then do something future-orientated to improve the outcomes for humans from those interconnections. A vision of civilization that perhaps is, is being lost at the moment. This brings us nicely to the idea of the de-civilization or the collapse of civilization. So depending on how the concept is approached, what happens when civilizations fall down? Okay, there's three things that come to mind. From a, a, an Elysian theoretical viewpoint, we might say a reversal of those interconnectivities, the reversal of the increasingly dense network society. Financial crashes, they're sort of a sign of and an instance in which the collapse of one entity can bring down many others. With the collapsing of various markets and employment at the moment, that this could be seen as, as something of a breakdown. Second, we could pin a, a breakdown of civilization on changes in affective conduct. So the first answer would be about the institutions and the networks breaking down. This answer would be about changes in, in terms of our habitus or superego taste and manners. We might in simple terms talk about the, the, the higher rates of domestic violence that are emerging currently. Um, more complex example, we might see a lack of foresight in what people are doing, a lack of orientation to the other. So um, panic buying might be an example of, of change in affective conduct. Um, third, we could say that uh, a, re a reversal of state power you know, a reversal of the monopoly of violence and taxation. You know, right now, state functions in the United King uh, Kingdom are, um, are being put out to the likes of Deloitte. But on the other hand, it's quite possible that, that the, the virus um, will increase the reach of centralized state power. So, you know, on the one hand, it, it, they could be put out to market. On the other hand, they could, could be retained within state. That, that'll be a, a choice of leadership. And of, of course, you can have all three of these happening at once. Um, Robert Van Creeken, professor of sociology at Sydney University, he noted in respect of uh, the Australian civilization, the barbaric treatment of, of Aboriginal nations. Um, it's, it's not a dark underbelly. It's absolutely key to the formation of the, the modern Australian state. And I guess it just goes back to this, this idea of a Faustian pact where Somehow, somewhere, whenever you've got civilization and civilizing, there's, there's externalized groups, territories, creatures, uh, ecosystems, whatever, factors of production on which a state depends that are subject to violence, violence supposedly abhorred by the, the civilized citizen. And, and look, this, this is happening now. You take workers at Amazon or in the Amazon, 
with both, we're, we're seeing a reversal of the monopoly of violence. And, and it could be economic violence in the peddling back of workers' rights in warehouses, or it could be actual physical violence that we see from so-called security companies getting trucked in um, to brutalize people who just happen to be going about living on their ancestral lands in, in Brazil. These, these are market entities that at once increase the interconnectivity of society. You know, we're, we're constantly seeking to further financial capital, supply chains, but the resulting ties here are essentially meaningless. And there's always these abject, externalized others who are separated in some way from the whole enterprise or, or forced to participate in the example of the, the forced market that you gave your for me, the breakdown of civilization, it's always, it, it, it's, it's always been happening at the same time as civilization. And, you know, do we see de-civilizing? De yes. I mean, because civilization is happening at the same time as its opposite. And that's, that's why I said earlier, I think you're lucky if, if you know it. Felix Guattari, in one of his more pessimistic moments, he wrote that today there is only one global culture, which is indeed the capitalist culture that mm. is uh, doing its best to expand without limit. But when you look at the situation, for example, in the States uh, in this current moment, there seems to be a sort of interesting paradox happening where, yes, indeed, if we can talk about capitalism as a civilizing process, that is certainly going on and trying to expand the reach of financialization throughout the world or marketization. But then let's look at, for example, Donald Trump. Look at the, he, isn't he sort of a, ironically, the sort of apex of contemporary capitalist civilization? Only cares about himself, this super individualist, only cares about things that can be immediately monetized, no long-term thinking, no planning, hates knowledge, doesn't read, that has no patience, this kind of fully capitalized subjectivity that's a sort of rushes in the thrill of all things. So isn't there this kind of a isn't there this kind of a paradoxical moment where this is indeed the biggest colonialist civilizing process, and at the same time, uh, we often speak with Alan and others. We speak of you know consumer culture as this vast machine of infantilization at the same time. Mm -hmm. So can we see these moments of, let's say, like you said, these simultaneous processes like the territorialization of capitalism, but the immediate and striking deterritorialization of its civilizing process at the same time? The one thing that sticks with me is, is of, of, what, of what you're describing there is the way in which we mustn't think of these network societies and the proliferation of economic networks as being in any way flat. I mean, rather, there's, there emerge these separate levels. And, and I think, you know, this goes, this, is, this very much goes back to, to Marx, I guess. But the word civilization covers for how the civilized treat themselves as a different species, whether you're thinking about a royal court with their manners. They're saying to people who would ape those manners and seek the power of the king, they're saying, get away, you're not part of our group. Interdependency always has its limits. Now, economists themselves are at least honest, unreflexively perhaps, about externalities. But um, Zygmunt Bauman pointed out in, in complex societies, there are things that vanish from sight. And I think the point here is to think about the way that we tend to separate these levels of interconnection with categories or, if, if you like, ontologies that are politically motivated. So Trump and the 
institutions that would financialize everything establish a kind of a, a system in which they are this royal court and others are treated as, as externalities. What's interesting to me perhaps here is it's in many of the histories of civilizations, it's the externalities which cause the problems. You know, the barbarians come back and bang at the gates. But in this case, of course, it's, it's not true. Rather, the threats to civilization are more often presented as external. So I'm thinking about, you know, that's a classic a rhetorical figure used by nationalist movements to say that, you know, the threat to the civilization is the other. But today, the, the barbarian, you know, the anti-intellectual who, you know, uh, I read in, in some editorial piece, you know, they're the questioning his, his, his willingness to even read briefs, right? Um, the barbarians are coming from inside the gates. Uh, and it was Arnold Toynbee's uh, classic study of civilization that he, he was the one who said that civilizations tend to fall when our leadership becomes parasitic. It's unwilling or unable to rise to a challenging encounter of one kind or another and remain future orientated. Now, this is terrifying at the moment, the crisis we're seeing in the United Kingdom. And one of the responses to this crisis is quite understandably through the mythological figure of Churchill and the mythological expressions of, you know, British, some of, some of the really wonderful characteristics of, of British people, um, you know, an ability to laugh at oneself, to, 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 to maintain grace under pressure, perhaps. But, but kind of what I'm seeing perhaps here is, is a, a version of civilization where we're looking backwards for what's civilized, a little bit like building that Greek temple in your 18th century stately home. We see a backwards look for what, what, what is civilized rather than the forward future orientated improvement of the lot of humanity. And, and that for me, while the material, monetary, technological, expressive features of civilization are, are, are fairly obdurate, and I, I hope we can rely on them through, through this crisis, but it's this kind of encounter with, with incompetence and a backward-looking incompetence that places us on, a, on something of a knife edge in the present moment. Now that you mentioned the rise of nationalism, uh, Deleuze and Guattari and others before them noted that if we look at fascism, it is inherently one characterized with an internal death drive, one that you know, plays on these flows of affect and violence. So this system that fascism builds itself on is inherently something that will basically descend into madness, if you will. So is there something about our current times that kind of relates to a certain, you know, this cancellation of the future and a sort of a dark outlook for what, what is to come next? Yeah, I mean, what, what confuses me, we, we've got a financial system that to some extent functions on its own. You know, something like 80% of trades are carried on by algorithm. Legal work is increasingly being done by machine. War is being done by machine and by, you know, Wi-Fi. We've, we've got this aversion to violence towards our own people, whilst the other vanishes 
from view. We do complete violence to, to, to ecosystems, forests. I think if we're to continue civilizing, I, I think we need to consider things like bacteria, where they live, you know, the soil, the trees, all of these things. Um, whereas actually we're, we're not. We are, in, in your words, we're, we're kind of infantilized. And, and perhaps one thing that Elias might have said is that people are bored. People have been, people have been bored and one of the solutions to boredom is, is violence. And that's violence that, you know, for a long time we've sought in sport and leisure. But I think increasingly, I mean, I'm thinking on my feet here, but increasingly perhaps uh, as it's commercialised, sports stars are, are increasingly, we, we can't relate to them. Sports become meaningless. Uh, participation is, is, is falling as councils sell off sports fields and, and sporting facilities. So I think possibly the, the, the worst thing that we could really have and, and perhaps we see emerging is a passive body because in a passive body certainly for uh, Elias draw, draws greatly on, on Freud and has a sense of, of, of a libidinal function that, that, that builds up like a pressure vessel and at some point you know explodes. Speaking of this libidinal pressure valve um, is there anything in the moment of the current global pandemic that gives us any clues about how we react to this situation in terms of how a particular form of civilization will be affected by this and what's the forecast for the future, if only speculatively? Good heavens. I, an Elysian theorist, of which I am not, would hesitate to make predictions about the future because every social interconnected situation is unique. However, Elias, in, in the civilizing process, says that, you know, that these, these things tend to move in the same direction in all societies. That is to say, we see less violence, we see uh, increasing interconnection. Now, I think in our discussion, we've, dis we've, we've sort of talked about some of the contradictions to that possibility. And those contradictions weigh around a few important things. And I think they go back to... First, these levels of interconnection and the exiles that are placed outside those levels. And I think that those situations of separation and externalization are incredibly important at the moment, whether we're talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline or, or the work of, of, of organizations like Survival International in the Amazon or whatever else. I think that one thing we mustn't do whilst we're on lockdown is take our eye off those situations that, that pre-existed our, our current situation. The second thing is the monopolization of various kinds of violence, not just physical violence, but economic violence and symbolic violence and, and whatever else we have. And I think, so rather than making any predictions, I think that those are two key social figures that we as citizens need to keep an eye on. Oh, oh yeah, and uh, one quick final question. And this comes from our previous guest, Stephen Dunn. Stephen wanted to ask you, Robin, 
as Stephen, somebody who is very influenced by Elias as well, he wanted mm. to ask you, uh, when will people who are indeed influenced by Elias, when will they stop thinking with the brain of Elias and think for themselves? <laughs> I think Stephen's asking the wrong person. I mean... <laughs> Robin has never thought either through the brain of Elias or through his own brain. Well, is it Alan? You once told me that I, I have, I'm neither id nor, no, I'm neither, oh, what was it you said? I can't remember. You've no it? ego, just id and superego. And superego. Okay, let's start again. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that's the right, I'm, I'm the right person to ask that question, but perhaps one of the things that holds back any any theory and, and any theorist is a is too much of a concern to to reproduce the needs of the theory and to to restore the the name of the great man over and above a willingness for joyful theorizing and a playing with ideas and, and thinking the unthought and 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 doing what I guess you guys in this series have, have talked about as as perverse theorizing. Um, which of course is always more fun. Thanks very much, Robin. This has been a very, very, very fun episode. Yes, thank you, Robin. One thing I've really enjoyed with these these podcasts, guys, is is the um, opportunity to hear voices of friends uh, that I probably won't be able to see for a while, uh, and that's that's been a, a really, a really nice thing. So thank you very much. And perhaps, okay. Robin, you'd be so kind as to play us out. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you.